before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 10. As always, we're back in the saddle here. Uh, we've got uh, the the popular, everyone's favorite boomer, uh, Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management, wearing his uh, Christmas sweater for us uh, this week. And of course, we've got uh, the Tom Brady of macro, Rich Diaz, currently in, in, in London, um welcome back to the show gents rich what's going on there you're uh you're in the land of the free i'm on plague island plague island uh corona eighty-eight thousand cases baby we're gonna top a hundred thousand by the end of this week and uh yeah it was actually quite normal just like five six days ago which is the sad thing um and as soon as you landed it was well, maybe I'm the one who brought it over here, and and you're also the cause of the Bank of England raising rates uh, today. Uh, that I'm definitely suddenly. I called in a favor, and they did it finally after all this all these years of dithering. Coincidence? I think not. Keith, what do you think? Well, he Rich must be in the UK right now. Is that wallpaper that's behind you? It, it's it's felt wallpaper it's even more embarrassing than normal wallpaper it's actually felt wallpaper <laughs> i won't tell my friend who's i'm at his house otherwise beautiful house but this is quite gauche so oh i thought you were going to say you're staying at the uh the fairmont or something something swanky no, no, I, I can't afford it so back here uh up north we've got a, a really big week and I'm, i think this is going to be a uh fantastic podcast because we've got a lot to cover um we've got an update to the bank of canada's monetary policy framework which of course they update every five years uh so we've got an update there we've got an update from uh our lord and savior the finance minister krista freeland uh who updated the canadian budget uh, numbers and then we had you know national home uh, statistics coming out for Canada. Uh, so like just a whirlwind of a week for data. Uh, so kind of want to jump into it, you know, first and foremost, the the Bank of Canada updated their monetary policy framework. Um, it's funny, they did it like a, a sort of a side-by-side interview, Tiff Macklem and Krista Freeland kind of showing their, their marriage joint at the hip there. Um, basically coming out and so now they've got a sort of so they still have the same sort of inflation mandate target two percent with a control range of one to three percent um but the important sort of addition here is they added in um a full employment or a labor component so but it's funny because they were careful not to call it's not a dual mandate but they're now considering employment and full employment as a part of the framework of their decision-making. And at the same time, they also said that it's hard to judge. It's hard to quantify quote unquote full employment. So it was very confusing. I mean, Keith, uh, you know, you've been around a while here, you, you know, you follow these central bankers, like what was your kind of take? Well, I mean, so first of all, um, so think about this. You have this really cool job to do. It's, it's, you get a lot of power with it and a lot of 
financial rewards after you finish the job, really. Then all of a sudden, you know, you're uh, maybe not your boss, but someone who's close to your boss sort of gives you these goals and objectives that can now never be quantified. So, perfect. <laughs> you know, inflation, if it's between one and three, you're okay. If it's over three, we'll wait for it to come down and, you know, try to create some jobs, but it's really hard to measure that as, as well. Um, I think it's a pretty good job. His, his job description just changed for the better for him, of course, which doesn't really mean it's better for everyone else uh, across the country. But, but, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks, I think, you know, we, we knew the mandate was going to change. We, we thought maybe climate change would become the official part of the mandate. But Steve, I don't really? think that was, was that discussed no, directly? No, they, they, they mentioned that they're going to have a role to play, but like they didn't, included as part of like their framework so again it's kind of like very gray area i mean i'm kind of surprised they like left it out so to speak um but i think the important yeah. thing is here is the labor component because it adds like this i don't know if ambiguity is the right word but like this gray area of just hey we're not quite at full like how do you really measure like full employment like well can so i read the thing can i read that can i read it yeah yeah. So it said the you know it's I'm not going to read the whole thing because that's boring. You guys can all look it up, um, listeners. But it says it outlines the the, the the rub the little bit that I think is important here. It it outlines how we keep how we will consider a broader range of labor market indicators to actively seek the level of maximum sustainable employment needed to keep inflation on target. And that's the that's the bit that that mentions employment. So that's extremely vague. I would argue. And as, as you guys kind of nailed a couple of weeks ago, it just it gives them the cover necessary to do whatever it is they want to do without, um, you know, doing the uh, conceding to the dual mandate. Um, and you guys are being way, way too nice. I'm I mean, I, I know you, you guys are afraid of getting banned. I think I'm getting I'm starting to care less and less about that. I think it's outrageous. And then, you know, I, I wrote to a colleague and I you know explained my my angry tweet and I think the reason is because timing is everything, right? They're not doing this in 2016 when inf- they're just, you know, if they really cared about this and they, you know, it was really important to how they perceived governing Canada may or may not be, you know, sustainable employment as part of the Bank of Canada's mandate. That might be a really important thing to consider when, you, you know, you're starting to want, you want to go into power. You want, these are the things you want to change as part of Canada's central banking framework. But it's when you're, you've got inflation really high. It's when you've got 10% budget deficit. It's when you have this kicker of the climate change stuff that you can make you do all kinds of wacky things in the background. It's when you are already back to full employment. Let's keep that in mind. You, we, um, you know, the peak pre-pandemic peak in employment was 19.2 uh, million people. And now we're at 19.3. Some might say, you know, Rich, some of those numbers are wan- wonky, fine. Okay, I'll concede that. But we're still very, very close. I think we can all admit. What about unemployment rate? That we're back down to pre-pandemic lows. Okay, let's ignore the unemployment rate. What about participation rate? Same. We're back to pre-pandemic highs. So it, it's not just they did it today. It's not even necessarily that it was a. It's a bad idea. The U.S. has a dual mandate. I would never necessarily. I would have a critical of the U.S. central bank for all kinds of reasons. Not necessarily that one. It's that it's right when they're necess- supposed to be raising rates and putting the squeeze on the crazy spending, it's that they now have a clear and perfect cover not to. 
And I think that that's, that's the outrage. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a pattern. Um, so I, I, I'm going to just, I'll, I'll step away from the microphone and let you guys take it on. But I think that that's the real key issue for me. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think it's important to kind of understand here. Like, I don't know, I just, it's funny that they did this, you know, conference together as well. I mean, oh um, yeah. Great point. Great point. Yeah. It's, I mean, people are, people are calling poor old Tiff Macklem. It's uh, Freeland, Freeland's lap dog. Uh, and that's the polite way of saying it but i mean uh, yeah keith you know you've talked about it before but just how um you know officially you know if you read cbc news um the bank of canada is um independent but you know really kind of behind the curtains wink wink nudge nudge uh they are not really independent. They're kind of working together, obviously, because, you know, Ray Dalio has made a point whether you like him or not, but you're kind of in what he calls monetary policy three. So, you you know, monetary policy one, you, you drop rates to to basically, you know, zero. You, you know, you try to re-stimulate the economy through dropping interest rates. Monetary policy two, he calls, you know, okay, you try to do a bunch of quantitative easing while lowering your interest rates. Okay, well, that's, you know, we've kind of exhausted that. Monetary policy three is basically fiscal spending or large deficit spending that ultimately gets financed by the central bank. And that's kind of like the, the end game, so to speak. But the other, the other, re- yeah, so well, exact, really well put. The other thing is um, that, I mean, that always ends in tears, by the way. Let's, let's not forget that. But the other thing is the central bank thus far has given, the, the bank of the government of Canada, everything they wanted anyways. So it's like, not only have they been, you know, demonstrably not independent. Remember in 2008, you know, this, the bank of Canada bought only 8% of federal debt issuance that cycle, 2008 to 2011, this time they bought 90%. So clearly some, there's something going on there with respect to quote unquote independence. The other thing is it's not enough to say that you're independent. It's that you have to be perceived to be. And I think that's the other thing that I think that they've just totally ignored, right? Them doing the press conference together. I mean, when have you ever seen Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris and, and Jerome Powell hanging out together? They're always on different sides of the table. It's meant to be an adverse. It's meant to be perceived as a somewhat adversarial relationship. And this idea that th- they're, kind of forgetting that like pushing that aside to me is a mistake i think it's you know maybe most canadians don't give a shit about it but i think it's really important Keith, did you want to chime in there because i just had a quick little point i don't know if we touched on it last week but um you know that the bank of canada is essentially a crown corporation right so it's like basically you got a situation where uh okay the the bank of canada buys the government <laughs> debt and all the, the interest payments that the Bank of Canada receives from the government actually essentially get remitted back to the federal government. So it's basically just like an accounting trick. But that happens in the U.S. too, right? The right. Federal Reserve's largest shareholder is the U.S. Treasury and a bunch of other kind of systemically important banks. And in the years post the GFC, the Federal Reserve handed back, I think at, some, at one point, there was one year they gave back like $87 billion dollars in in dividend payments so it's not an unreasonable sort of um you know um what's it called uh, arrangement just just you know put it in context a little bit no it's a good point keith well one thing that was interesting uh you know rich i think you mentioned 
you know, you never see Harris and Powell hanging out together. I've, I've never seen uh, Harris and Biden on screen together either. So, <laughs> <laughs> so okay. She's, she's uh, like you. She's always hanging out. She doesn't leave her house. Yeah, something like that. Uh, you know, I think you hit, hit right on the head, Richard. You made a comment that, you know, they're, they're supposed to, if you're perceived as not being independent, then, you know, it, it is what it is. <clears throat> um, so from our perspective, I think it's important not to view the Bank of Canada in isolation. Guys, when, when they went super duper dovish and passive there at the beginning of the pandemic, they, they were doing exactly what everybody else is doing as well. So on its own, it's like, holy smokes, they're buying, you know, they're, they're funding the entire deficit, the low rates is zero, they're bailing out the banks, building out the provinces and all that stuff. But, you know, every central bank was doing that at the same time. And, and what's really great now with central banks, and especially this week, you know, the Canadians are now, sorry, the Americans came out yesterday and they're saying, hey, we're going to be more hawkish. And, and by the way, we'll go, we'll go back into this because this is incredibly important, what the Fed did yesterday. Uh, it's going to have, uh, you, you have to ignore what happened in the markets over the last 48 hours. Because what, what the Fed said, it's just, it's going like, to just rip the soul right out of the emerging market world. Uh, then you had the Bank of England this morning. Now they're, they've turned more hawkish. Uh, the ECB, which we'll come back to as well. But the Bank of Canada is doing exactly the same as what everyone else is doing. You know, they're all backed into a corner and they're trying to have it both ways. And um, so it's not shocking. So in, in isolation, Canada looks pretty bad. But I think if you compare the Canadian situation to uh, Europe, especially, it's it's pretty good. Like I would be long Canadian versus Euro, for example, like on, on a cross rate. That's what you'd look at. But but again, like all the central banks are doing, you know, pretty abnormal things, but they're all doing it at the same time. Yeah. So let's, let's expand on that. And then we'll get into sort of um, the sort of bigger picture global macro. Cause I think, yeah, we've, we obviously had some, some news out of the fed there in the U S um, but, you know, speaking of the sort of joined at the hip uh, so we got the, the bank of Canada update to their, to, to their not, no, don't call it a dual mandate, dual mandate. Um <laughs> But you had uh, Christopher Freeland also came out uh, the same week um, updating the uh, Canadian government's budget deficit. So they're forecasting a budget deficit of about $144 billion this year. Uh, they said that was, quote unquote, like a slight improvement or a, a better than expectations. Uh, so good job, everybody. Um, but just for context, uh, in 2009, so following uh, the, you know, the global financial crisis, right? I mean, basically, the, the world was coming to an end, so to speak. Uh, the Canadian, the budget deficit that year uh, was 30, just under $35 billion. It was actually $33 billion uh, in that 2009 fiscal year. Uh, so this year, again, we're running 144 billion just, uh, for context, right? I mean, that's just uh, a staggering number. Um, I don't, that's again, twice, I don't by the way, that's twice as a percentage GDP. That's twice effectively. Yeah. So right. what, do, twice do, as big. Rich, do you have any of the numbers in terms of, uh, like fiscal spending as a percentage of GDP right now? Like, well, I mean, I, I can just tell you what, yeah. So right now it's about, you know, 11, according to the IMF. And I, I um, that's for 2020, um, 2020 and in 2021, basically it's been to go around to eight. That's their sort of forecast for 2021. 
Um, and But no, I think, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in 2021 and 2022. I don't like to trust the IMF forecast because they're a little bit rosy. But the, the important point that I wanted to reiterate what you said, Steve, it's, you know, in 2008, nine and, and let's say 10, I'm trying to see the chart now, it was about 5% of GDP. So it's, tw- I mean, just to, to give you the content, I mean, it's tw- the budget deficit is basically twice as big, right? Over those few years, it's wild. Right. So they're okay. Yeah. So they're basically, they're, they're, they're on, to, I guess maybe to sort of make this a little bit more simple for the, for the viewer here, that's trying to play along. Um, essentially government spending is, is responsible for roughly 10% of all of GDP in Canada. Is that a fair? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it, it depends, right? It's like, Oh, do you get what part of growth? And that's a different calculation. And there's like, you know, there's like the knock-on effects. I mean, the issue yeah. is we're spending money. I think the, the the real issue is we're spending a lot of money that we as yet have not figured out a way to fund. And, um, and instead of having a significant impact on our bond yields, right, e.g. the credit worthiness of our, our nation, um, it's not because central banks are no longer independent and are squeezing down. So it's just that's a whole, you know, it's not fair to just wrap it up into one sentence, but I think you've done a really, really good job of highlighting the major discrepancy, the major change. So yeah, carry on. Keith? So what, what's, what, what I love about those, uh, you know, those federal financial projections when they come out with it, <clears throat> you know, they, all, they always give you a five-year projection where it's going to go. And then you get, I think it was the OECD numbers that we saw earlier. And, uh, you know, they'll go out 10 years. And I always get a great chuckle because so the people preparing these, especially for the federal government, you're preparing it to support what you want to do. So it's like the, um, what was the, uh, the spreadsheet term? The, uh, the, the goal-seeking term? That we yeah, goal-seeking. I, I was going to yeah, call yeah. it k- Kabuki Theater. <laughs> kabuki Theater? <laughs> I don't know. It's a new, new term I heard. I like it. I enjoy it. So I've, I've taken it. Okay. So the bottom line is, though, they're trying to figure out, you know what? We need to, we're going to have to borrow a lot of money for this spending. And um, I know we talked last week, and I think I made a comment that, you know, governments are not running a, a P&L, a profit and loss, so they don't really care. And maybe that they don't care. It's very hard to quantify a subjective goal you're trying to make. So with, with all these deficits that are being projected, you know, I, I read through the whole paper yesterday that they came out and, you know, they're going to improve everyone's life because of COVID. People have lost it because of COVID. Everything is, and, and again, just a rational person would, would agree with everything they're saying. Yeah, of course we got to do this. Yes, we're going to do that. So there's no way to quantify, you know, where, you know, where, where are you going to draw the line in the sand? However, you, they also show data that show what's going to be the impact of the deficit on GDP over the next five years. And what you'll see when you look at that paper, it, it improves every single year to the point where I think they're almost balanced in five years. And like, I'll bet you Steve Sarevsky's mic, they are not going to be balanced in five condo. years. That, want, yeah, the budget will the balance condo. itself. We're betting your it's, condo, Steve, that the, the budget will not balance itself. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Balance will uh, budget itself. I, I like no, that, I, by the way. That's, that's pretty cool. And, uh, but the other key thing though, but just to carry on from that, you know, cause you know, we're all data guys, you know, we would like the numbers. And soon as you dig in deeper 
and they have a full paragraph there. They're saying, so one, one of the financial tricks that the Canadian government will always do, and it's always from a political perspective, you always want to compare yourself to somebody else. That's what you do. You think, and that way then you can make yourself look better. And so in, in this paper, they're showing, they're comparing Canada to the G7. So G7 is like the old man's club. You know, they hang out in, in the library with wallpaper in the room, like what Rich has there right now, where, where you are. And it's, anyway, it's, you can, if you're a member of the G7, you can always yank out, you know, somebody, somebody else's statistic on something to make you look better because we're all horrible. You know, we've been around for so long, spending so much money and, and so forth. But the, the key thing with all these metrics is that you look at the interest rate that they're using and the interest rate that they're assuming. And this isn't the Bank of Canada, right? It'll be long-term interest rates. They're effectively making the assumption that long-term rates will never, ever go higher. And it's a market rate. So if, if rates stay low forever and the economy continues to boom and the Bank of Canada is able to you know, they don't have to raise rates too much on the short end. Inflation is taken care of, but growth is still being maximized. And there's a lot of things that don't reconcile here. It's going to be extremely difficult for these long-term projections to play out. Because otherwise, five years ago, we wouldn't be in this position today. And people say, hey, well, COVID happened. You know, you, of course, you know, you, that, that is fair. However, if you go five years before the previous five-year projection came out, like none of that happened. And so they keep leapfrogging each other with their projections. And it doesn't matter who's in, who's in power here. They're always using unreasonable economic and interest rate data to, again, to gold seek what they want to show everyone. And today people are just, people think with their left side of the brain so much today that again, no one is, is questioning, you know, why aren't you using the right side of your brain? Like, again, where's the money coming from? How are you going to do it? And it, again, it's just creating this, I think it's going to be an exceptional think, market. Uh, but I think that's a, an important point because as a government, like, you you know, what's the old adage? Like you never let a crisis go to waste, right? And so I think the important thing here is like, you have to kind of mobilize the people in society. Um, and so basically right now you have to mobilize people to to come together for one sort of cause. And what we have today is we are running, we are running, wartime monetary and fiscal policy and this time there's no guns right it's just it's a virus and and it is the you know you keep hearing politicians it's the war on covid it's the war on covid we've got to we've got to fight this thing we've got to end end this pandemic and move on and you know we're two years into it and like you know you're still going through rolling lockdowns and third and fourth boosters and and you know we need to spend more because of covid and and it's funny because if i look at uh part of that budget deficit uh the canadian government has pledged nearly 30 billion dollars in new covid spending over the next six years so they've got spending 30 billion dollars that's spread out over the next six years to to for covid right so again it's you have to sort of think almost like a politician, right? I mean, like you need, you need almost like an excuse or a cause to sort of run these massive deficits and, and get people to support them. And one way to support them is like, we need to do this in order to beat COVID. And like, if you say, well, I don't want to beat COVID, like what kind of human being are you? Right. So <laughs> it, it's, it's, you've got everybody. And obviously of course the mainstream media pushes it just says, Hey, you know, Krista Freeland, good for her. You know, she's, She's spending money she to cares. fight COVID. 
she cares. So like we're doing the right thing, right? Like, you know, $10 a day ch- childcare, like, you know, what kind of person are you if you say that's a bad policy? I mean, you don't care about children and, you know, equality, you know, it goes on and on and on. But the, I, I agree with you, Stephen. That's why I think it's so important that you never take things, you know, I always say it's not, it's never just one thing. Well, you can never just look at one thing either. When, when, when people show you, tell you who you are, believe them, you know? And I think that that's what's so, that's why when, you know, you see Christopher Freeland stand up with the Bank of Canada governor uh, in conjunction with the changing of the mandate, in conjunction with the COVID as an excuse to do all kinds of things that these guys have had in their briefs, in their attache cases for years and years and years and have been waiting for this opportunity. And the other thing is that they perceive, they see the forecast. There's a forecast on the numbers side, but they also, there's a forecast on how on, you know, they just, a lot of this policy is directly related to why house prices are up like crazy and inflation is up like crazy and they refuse so not only are all they going to get all the good stuff but all the bad stuff's not their idea and you know it's not about bashing one political party or another because i can promise you there's loads of right-wing policy uh, you know politicians who've done this exact same thing i think for us it's just to recognize um you know as keith always soberly tells us you know who cares um you know what should happen it's about what is going to happen and so that's for me when people say, you know, rich inflation is going to correct. I say no. And I cite the previous examples of what we just discussed. And when, you know, and I'm sure when people say, oh, don't worry, our housing policy is going to really help the house prices. Steve, what's your view on all of this on housing? Oh, you, know, you, gave me a, you gave me a fantastic segue because um, we're talking about, uh, you know, obviously all these uh, central bankers coming together with the, um, you know, budget deficit spending, et cetera, et cetera. I was actually, I don't know if I mentioned this podcast last week. So I went and testified in the, the house of commons there on the finance committee. Cool. Yeah. They were talking about proposing a uh, you know, a bill to again, fight COVID. Um, And so I just went on there and said, listen, I can't speak about, you know, where you're going to spend these funds. And, and obviously the, 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 I think trying to push it towards the, uh, hospitality sector, which I'm sure, yes, they probably, especially now with rolling the lockdowns, they're going to need more support and more help. But all I said was, I can't necessarily speak to that, but all I said is you guys might want to be very particular of where you allocate and how much you spend uh, fighting these, these pushing these programs. Cause I said, what I can say from my experience is that your uh, you might've overstimulated and we're seeing that show up uh, this excess capital sloshing around. And in my opinion, it's showing up in house prices. And I kind of just elaborated that, you know, I mean, so now if we look today, I mean, this, again, the same sort of week, all this is coming out. Uh, we had national home prices. Uh, they're actually accelerating. They're inflating at their fastest pace ever on record. So national home prices in November are up 25% on a year over year basis. So 25%, um, I mean, I, I, this is like a crisis on epic proportions. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of where we are at from the housing market. Uh, if I can, you know, if I look right now, you've got home prices are rising. Uh, they're 2.7% on a month over month basis. So it's like, we've actually had, um, if you go back, like, just remember 
from the get-go that these guys have been wrong the entire time. Like remember a year ago, Tiff Macklin was saying, oh, housing, it's just transitory. You know, it's a little bit of pent-up demand because people were shut down in their homes for two months. And, you know, this will this this too shall pass. I mean, again, since his comments were up, you know, another 25 plus percent. Um, and he said he came out and said the same thing in the summer, right? He's like, oh, you know, we can see housing is slowing down. And it, it kind of did. It slowed down a little bit in the summer. And it's reaccelerated since September. So September, like I can tell you, like in Vancouver and Toronto, it's the two markets I follow the most. From September to like where we are now, mid-December, like the, the entry-level detached house is up like another five to ten percent in those like three and a half months. Um, we've basically got like I would call it like escape velocity. I mean, it's it's unbelievable what's happening right now. And, and I mean to add to that, one thing I think one thing that's really great. And again, I always like to know what our policymakers going to do. And again, the Bank of Canada and the federal government, they're so incredibly consistent all the time. So the Bank of Canada will not do anything to pop the housing bubble. They're not going to do it. They've had so many opportunities already. Key haven't had to <laughs> think just, that the you just crushed all these millennial dreams. I know, but it's hey, no, no, not me. I'm just the messenger. Well, what's also great is that the federal government, they're not going to do it either. You know, they're going to dance around it. So you know, the housing bubble, it, it will correct. It, it will self-correct, by the way, because nothing can, you know, it, it, nothing is nothing. Grow, no, you mean trees don't grow to the sky. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so, you know, it will be a, you know, a, a market event that will cause it to correct. Um, but if you know, it won't be the policymakers, it will be something else. And that's what we keep going back to. Maybe now we, because we, now we know, now that we know what, you know, Bank of Canada is going to do, uh, they're going to try to raise rates. Absolutely. They've already ended QE. Uh, the Americans are doing the exact same thing in London this morning. The Bank of England, they did the, they surprised everyone and raised rates. Uh, the, the Europeans try to be fluffy about it and uh, they're not going to raise rates, nor are they ever going to end QE, but they're trying to have it on, on both sides of it. But uh, again, now the central banks are now set up, to, uh, the Canadians and the Americans and, and the Brits anyway, are, you know, to, to try to slowly move back to a normal rate of interest rates or level. And uh, they will do that until something breaks. And of course, um, what the Americans came out with yesterday, it, it tells me as an investment manager, again, th this is exactly what I wanted to see. They said, hey, we're going to be hawkish. We're actually going to accelerate our pace of slowing down bond purchases. Uh, we're absolutely going to start raising rates. And if things do not slow down, or if there's no event anywhere, they'll keep doing it. So they'll keep doing this until it stops. And the reason we like this, because it's trending right along the path that we expect it to, in that as the Americans are able to raise rates, uh, raise interest rates, uh, stop their QE or slow it significantly, it, it just, again, it sucks capital out of the rest of the world. And from our perspective, you know, it just creates opportunity for investing portfolios. So the emerging market world, I mean, they're really going to struggle. And I know, Rich, earlier, was it yesterday, Rich, that you, you compared Canada to Turkey? Yeah, yesterday I did. You, you did that? So yeah, this, I did. This is I was I outside yesterday. Yeah, I was outside. No, I mean, it must have been yesterday or the day before, and I meant it, you know? I, I mean, obviously, they're massively different countries, the, you know, different current account balances, different food, different sports, you know? Didn't that tweet go viral? 
I, I mean, I guess so. As far as I'm concerned, it did. It was a little embarrassing. I've done so much better work in the last two years. And for that stupid thing to go absolutely bananas, I guess it, it hit a nerve because I think people, I think, you know, I think in some ways people, they're constantly being spoon fed this bullshit, basically, that inflation is that food inflation is 4% when everyone knows it's 25, that housing prices are going to come down when, you know, when they when as at a federal level, when we all know it's provincial and, and, and bureaucrats that get in the way, and it's negative real interest rates that are the big lever. I mean, people anyone- are just enough of this already let's let's some someone and this is why you know we talked about this last time why this long form media is useful because someone i'm not saying we're saviors but at least we're having an honest discussion about the difficulties that regular people are dealing with which is housing and inflation and horrible returns on their equity portfolios that will inevitably be a result of the tightening of fiscal policy in the u.s but one more thing on 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 that on that like housing thing I'm sorry. Sorry. One more thing. Sorry. On on the on the central bank stuff, uh, where maybe Keith and I we disagree. I mean, I don't think that raising interest rates, you know, thirty or four, like a 30, 30 basis points. Um, you know, today it was fifteen in the UK, twenty five basis points. Um, is the next rate hike expected for the US? You know, hundred basis points is expected in for Canada the next you know twelve months. It doesn't matter. Inflation's five percent. Negative real interest rates are still at fifty year lows. So like all this stuff, I think all this talk, I think misses the trick. I mean, that's why you, it's, it's not going to affect housing unless you raise interest rates higher above the rate of inflation, e.g. real interest rates, which by the way, is what it's been for most of the last 70 years. This is not some kind of crazy Austrian hawkish view. All I'm saying is let's just go back to normal. And I, and I'm pretty sure all the stuff that we bitch about but the Bank of Canada, again, like the Bank of Canada is not going to deflate the housing market because if they do, they deflate the banks because there's only five big Canadian or six big Canadian banks. And if, if all of a sudden, if the housing market is purposely deflated or corrected, it, you know, it just cuts the banks off at the kneecaps. So no, but wait a again, second. That's not going to happen. They weren't like during the, during the pandemic, the Canadian banks weren't even allowed to pause their dividends. Because <laughs> all the all the old people are relying on their dividend payments. I know, like no. it's all one tightly wound. Like it's like the snake. It's the same. It's the same trade. It's the same, trade. Right? It's the same you know, trade. But the snake eating the tail, right? Like it, you keep going around and round. And Keith, you're and way more cynical. You're you're even more cynical than I am, which is quite impressive. So congratulations on that. But I mean, if you raised interest rates by two hundred basis points at the front end of the curve it would still be you'd still have negative real interest rates and it would dramatically change the calculus that people make but i don't necessarily believe that it would tank the housing market i I, to me that's i think that's way with respect i still think i still think if mortgage rates mortgage rates i think we've talked about this in the show i think so long as mortgage rates go north of three percent and they hold for six months, I think you'll see a significant slowdown in the housing market. Yeah, but wait a second. Tanking a housing market to me is, you know, Las Vegas in 2008, 40% decline. Ireland, 30% decline. Spain, projects all over the coast of Spain. All, when you drive down the coast of Spain, it's just a skeleton of made out of cement and people just basically packed up their tools and went away. The idea that you just don't have 30% year-on-year 
increases in housing is not a tanking of the housing market. Like, sorry, can we get some definitions squared away here? Because all I'm saying is if you raise interest rates a little bit, you just might have a 5% increase in house prices instead of... Five, 5%, <laughs> 5% a year would ruin a lot of retirement plans. Oh my goodness. I mean, am I too naive? Maybe I'm just naive. I don't know. Keith's pissed. Keith's pissed. Uh-oh. No, Keith, Keith is just objective. So the greatest way the Americans can fix their inflation problem, and I think this is the way that they'll fix it, uh, they're going to let the dollar run hot and they'll let a correction take place in equity markets. And that is one way to slow down inflation. Because if all of a sudden, just say you're sitting on a, just say you value your investment portfolio at, let's say it's a million bucks or 5 million or 500,000. All of a sudden it's 10, 20, 30% less than what it was last month. You stop spending, you slow down your, your spending. And if the dollar is uh, stronger, all of a sudden the cost of importing stuff, you know, isn't as much, you know, the the Americans have a very unique opportunity that the Canadians don't have, the Australians don't have. And the by the way, Europe is absolutely the most dangerous economy on the planet when it comes to fiscal and monetary policy. It's just set up for this, like, this unbelievable bang that can take place. I mean, uh, for example, I mean, we're talking about, for example, the Bank of Canada was monetizing effectively all of the monthly deficit from Ottawa, right? What if you knew the Bank of Canada was buying 120% of the deficit every month? Ridiculous. Yeah, what if it was 150%? And that's what's happening in Europe. So the ECB, you know, they're, they're buying all of the Italian deficit that's being issued every month plus they're buying italian bonds that are already trading as well you know same thing for spain and portugal and, and so forth not for the german stuff because it's just the way that the grid is made out but again you, you always have to compare one country to another like i said what the g7 you know what the feds do with the g7 metrics but the same thing on a monetary policy so as, as bad as it can sound here in canada again like the, the big bang that can really affect all the markets it, it's going to come from overseas you know, whether it is uh, Europe or Turkey. And by, and by the way, I know you, you meant comparing Canada to Turkey is a bit of a tongue in cheek. And uh, the metrics in Canada, no, Turkey is absolutely horrendous. And Canada is not even remotely close to being a Turkey. In no, it was tongue in cheek. It was tongue in cheek. Yeah. No, it was about the government. It, it wasn't even so much about the economic realities, the numbers, with all, you know, with all due respect to some of the people who got all annoyed about that. It was really just purely the government intervention in the central bank. Every literally every leave everything aside. You know, Erdogan put his like nephew or whatever it was as the head of the central bank. And I couldn't help but think it was like the Canadian, like polite, you know, oh shucks, we're just like we're above board. We're gonna do it in a nice sanitized way. And I'm watching this. I'm just like, it's just. You know, it's the Middle East. So everything's a bit like more obvious and Canada's very sanitized and white. So, you know what I mean? What are you going to do? Yeah. But thank you for clarifying that. Man, I didn't want our listener to, to be confused. That's <laughs> good. No, I'm happy you said that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Just Why don't we just, move along next? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Keith. I was just going to say, to wrap, to wrap that whole Canada stuff up, I've just been, over the last couple of weeks, just flabbergasted at what's, what's happening with fiscal monetary and just that, everybody just seems to be asleep at the wheel. 
like and and like th- like there's no media coverage nobody ever asks central banks any hard questions everybody just nods their head and yeah yeah okay you know same just, thing so now it's right it's a good just point because sh- like it, when i shut it down yeah, really good, good point it's a really good point it's just so when i go it. to say dinner parties or hanging out with, with friends for this or that nobody i know do they ever talk about canadian financial metrics no one is not even a part of the conversation and i don't know if it's because they, they're just not aware of it or they don't know where to go to get the information or or so on but you know as, as canadians you know maybe this you know this podcast is a great start you know people become more interested and aware of it but the longer that the majority and i don't mean like 50 plus one percent i bet you it's like 90 percent of canadians that just have no idea of the awkward financial position that we've been pushed into right now and what well, and what the ahead. ramifications can be a few years from now because when it happens it's going to be how, how did this happen and of course I, yeah i don't want i don't want it. people to i don't want people years from now to be like oh we didn't know how did this happen we're shocked or worse blame the incoming government because eventually people get sick of whatever parties in power right and the new guys are going to come and they're going to be holding this grenade and then they're going to freaking throw those people under the bus, regardless of your political persuasion. I, I promise you, if, it, the, if, the, if the political parties were diverse, I promise I would not be saying my, my view would not have changed. I can guarantee you. But how, our, and the other thing is people say, oh, Rich, you're, no, you're such a Canada hater. You all hate on Canada. No, it's because I love Canada that I think people should be informed about the realities and the, and the potential repercussions of this. Yeah. Spe- speaking of which, I don't, I'm not sure if we mentioned this in the, uh, in the show here, but the OECD. Uh, the OECD put out a, a report uh, highlighting that Canada, uh, of all the advanced economies, is, is projected over, the, over this coming decade is going to be the worst performing advanced economy uh, in terms of uh, real GDP per capita growth. Um, so, again, if that doesn't you know, piss you off tell as a them, Canadian. Hey, Steve, t- tell everyone who was number one on the list for the, for the best growth opportunities I think it was. Look to, look to the left on oh. the, the bar. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? Turkey. <laughs> it's Turkey. <laughs> Real. But again, uh, it funny. just shows like it's a one dimensional metric, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's the, the challenge here, of course. And you always have to take these forecasts with a bit of grain of salt, to be fair. 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 But I, I just see these and I get like emotionally charged. I'm like, man, we are run by a bunch of idiots. But anyway, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you one of the ways that these are calculated and why Canada does so badly is because the, the, you know, if you look at, remember it's something Reinhardt and Rogoff who are these really, you know, very, very well accredited IMF researchers. They went to Harvard and Yale and their, their children are in Harvard and Yale and their grandparents are, everyone went to Harvard and Yale, whatever it is. And they basically argue that the more debt that you have in an economy, the much, 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 much harder it is to continue to grow at a, whatever pace. So ultimately I don't, I haven't seen this OECD study that well, but I can, I've seen enough of these studies to know that a lot of them are a function of when you have that much debt in your economy and Canada is, you know, the, the bank of uh, the Canadian finance minister couldn't answer this question, but Canada has 345% of debt to GDP, right? And our household debt to GDP is one of the, like we're in the top five of household debt to GDP, government debt to GDP, you know, non-financial corporate um, sector debt to GDP. So like, we've got a lot of debt and the only way you can really grow out of that is you either inflate your way, you do productivity or, you know, there's a couple, or you default. Um, but anyway, but, sorry. 
sorry, just to quickly touch on that, but like, that's the thing. You see all those metrics, and you're like, holy shit, this thing is like an absolute debt bomb. Just wait, like it's like a, it's just this powder keg, just ready to blow. And then you hear like these, you know, the big bank economists that come out in Canada say, oh, you know, eight rate hikes. It's like, is this just like a, is this just like a belief and a faith in the system? Like, because like, there's no way when you look at all these debt to GDP metrics and the amount of leverage in the Canadian economy that like, th- that you can actually get away with that many hikes without completely blowing up the, the local economy here. It's like, did these guys just like look past that? Like, I'm just kind of curious of like, like yeah, what are we they, looking at here? Yeah, they, they do, Steve. So, so for example, that that um, the OECD data points that you're just you're showing there with you know Turkey is being the uh, projected to have the most success, so Canada with, with the least amount. All of these are based upon. So, for any debt metric, as long as you're able to borrow to roll over the maturing debt and to borrow from more debt. You know, you become levered and, and become levered, you know, you get a, a, dollar, a dollar of income, you know, it could become three or four times. So that's why these emerging market countries, they always look awesome when things are going well. But the moment a crisis hits, and this is where the big banks, you know, they always have a challenge because they're, they're never going to forecast a crisis to occur. It's just not in the culture. You're not allowed to do it. Um, and everyone misses them, of course. And it's one thing to say, hey, a crisis is going to happen. People say, well, when is it going to happen? You know, they have that sort of you know, backhanded slap on you for even suggesting it. But when they do happen, and they do happen on a regular basis, Turkey will implode as it's happening right now. The uh, Asian countries imploded back in the late 90s. It's not because they had too much debt. They couldn't borrow. Foreign investors said, whoa, you're in trouble. I don't know if you are or not, but I heard you are. I am not giving you my money. And it, and it just leaves the system, right? That that's what happened. And uh, that's where we are today. It's like something will go bang in the, or boom in the night, whatever, whatever the phrase is. And that's this one is going to really, you know, mix up these numbers. So that, I mean, it was really interesting. So in the financial planning world, you know, one of the biggest uh, suggestions, recommendations you read in all the books and TV shows and podcasts is, you know, pay off your debt, pay off your debt first and all that stuff. Yet for some reason that doesn't exist for the public sector. I don't know why, but it, it doesn't. So, can I just add one more thing to yeah. the to the to the crisis thing? So, the one of the reasons the Asian crisis, Asian, and it and it relates to Canada, but the, one of the reasons the Asian economies, when something did go wrong, they basically they like they couldn't borrow. But you know, if you step back a couple of years before that, it's because they were running huge budget deficits, right? So they weren't building reserves right so now if there was something wrong those exact same asian countries they have such they've been building massive massive reserves because they 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 were forced to change their economies it hurt it a massive external devaluation of their currencies and they became and then all those current account deficits went to current account surpluses and then they use that consistent current account surplus to build up massive reserves so if something happens, they can use, they can draw down on those reserves and basically and meet their near-term obligations. Basically, they can, they're not insolvent. They can deal with liquidity crisis. The reason why Turkey is so screwed is because, for one of the reasons, I mean, I'm not as sophisticated on, on Turkey as maybe I should be, but they run current account deficits. They don't have any of those reserves. They have no, they have no sort of um, shock absorber. 
I'm, and I always, you know, I always bug my friends who are, you know, very into all this climate change stuff and green stuff, you know, be careful. Canadians should be very, very weary of, or wary, whatever, of, of, of knocking down the oil sector, because the only thing that is preventing Canada from becoming one of those Asian countries of the late nineties that is extraordinarily vulnerable to external shocks is the fact that we have a massive, massive, massive current account surplus in oil. If tomorrow that went to zero, our current account balance would be severely, severely negative. We would have no reserves very, very quickly and would be extremely, extremely vulnerable to those external shocks. So I'm just like, you know, I know that's my bugbear. Maybe I should stop talking about oil because it's a bit, I know it's probably a bit much for a lot of people, but just be careful what you wish for is what I'm trying to say. But Rich had a really good chart on that. Was it yesterday or this morning or the day yeah, before? Yeah, it might have been yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can share that one on, on the on the show. I think today. we posted that one before, but we'll post it up again. There's another now, version oil, of it. Oil basically pays for our way of life, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's a great chart. So why don't we move on to oh, I have a couple of we so when um when I was in, in before Ice Cap, I was working on a on a big desk as a bunch of bunch of us there. And uh at the end of each year we used to play the uh if you knew game. That's what we would call it. And it would go something like, if you knew the economy would grow at this rate, what do you think would have happened with this market and that market? And what you've always discovered with that is, and it's a good point I think people need to appreciate, is that most times financial markets are not reconciled with the economy that you're in. Or you can have economic movements and booms and busts, and financial markets are doing the exact opposite or they have no correlation whatsoever so like a couple that i just saw there a couple of days ago i thought it was interesting so if you knew a year ago that inflation would be running at six seven eight percent on an annualized rate what would have you done you know of course some say i would have loaded up on gold Are you kidding me we go from zero percent inflation <laughs> or deflation to six eight percent i'm gonna make a killing on gold and what's happened with gold over the last year down. It's a negative. Well, yeah, you, you've lost money. Or another one, for example. Keith, same we're gonna thing. lose all our followers. Careful. <laughs> well, here's another one. If if you thought, you know, again, inflation will be running at six or eight percent, you know, and you're already loaded up on gold, you don't have any more room for that. So what else are you gonna do? You're gonna short the bond market. You're gonna short the ten year. You know what's happened? You know the. 10 year, it's, it's been pretty flattish over that time. So again, it should, you know, as an investor manager, it's something to, to think about all the time, just because, you know, we're suggesting the economy is going to do this or that. It's not always a one, one for one move and, you know, another corresponding uh, financial market or investment market. It's really important to, to remember that. Everyone. Yeah. Buy the debt on it. housing. That's my lecture. It's my oh, lecture, my. right? <laughs> Just buy a house and sit on it. That's all you need to do. Steve, yeah. can I ask you a Go question ahead. if yeah. we can circle back? Sorry, I know this is a bit naughty, but I have just a question. I'm really curious. And maybe some of the listeners are too. Like when they were asking you questions, like did, did were they smart questions? Like, did you feel like these people were switched on and they knew what they were doing and genuinely trying to get at the answer? Or were they just trying to cover their, their butts? I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because like I went on there and I found out, obviously I was invited on by, I found out when I got on to the show that I was invited on by like one of the conservative party members. Um, and so I was, and then they, the liberals had invited on their sort of lapdog and the NDP had invited on sort of their, you know, 
person that aligns with their political party, so to speak. And so like most of the questions that were fielded to me over a two hour period uh, were largely from the conservatives. I think I, I had zero questions from the NDP about you know housing, housing inflation. Uh, you think they care I, anyway. No, they don't. Yeah. It's just like, they don't, they don't, they don't get it. Right. I mean, uh, and then I had like one question from like the liberal party. Um, but yeah, I mean, so keep in mind that majority of my questions were from conservatives who I think were ultimately as well trying to play up like kind of what they're playing up now, which is like yeah. just inflation and like, uh, you know that, but I mean, again, I think they are bringing up some important points, right? I mean, like the liberals are sort of supposed to be this like, you know, middle-class advocates. You remember when they had a minister of the middle-class uh, which they had to fire or get rid of because they couldn't define the middle class because, well, middle class doesn't exist. Newsflash. Um, you know, like when you have national home prices running up 25% year over year, like just devastating for that middle class. Yeah. Steve, lower middle were, class. Steve, I'm just curious what were the, the questions from the, uh, from the other side? Like not, not to you, but to the other invited guests what were they oh yeah they like it was basically like so for the NDP, they had brought on some lady i mean she she was nice i don't remember her name but uh she was more or less talking about the serb and the government was trying to claw back serb payments from sort of like retirees or low-income individuals that had maybe uh, had received too many SERB payments and the government was trying to claw some of that back. And she was saying, well, like they can't afford to pay it back. Like you need to just give them an exemption, call it a wash. Uh, so that was like one of them. And then the, the guest, I think on the liberal side was the, um, she was kind of like a lobbyist for the hotel sector. Uh, you know, trying to, obviously she was lobbying for um, more stimulus and more sort of an extension of all these wage subsidies. So everyone was just kind of brought on to sort of angle their political views. And like Keith, like you said, we talked about it before I jumped on that thing. It is really ultimately like a, a dog and pony show, right? Like it doesn't matter what you say. Everyone's there just to sort of look good and, and the bill is going to pass as it passes and nothing's going to change. We're still going to run these massive deficits. We're still going to have central bank financed, you know, deficit spending. Like we're just going down this path that like, it doesn't matter almost really who's in, power in my opinion it's just this just what it is and we have to sort of adapt to that environment so don't sell your house well i mean it's the same thing we were talking about at the beginning of the show right it's the same thing with like this covid stuff i mean you know it, it doesn't matter if it's a less potent variant in terms of whatever like it doesn't matter it, all you know is that like whether you agree with it or disagree with it if cases go up lockdowns are coming like that's just it's just like the reaction function again you can agree with the lockdowns or disagree with them but cases spike it's get your booster we're locking you down and it's just going to be this repeat cycle it's just it just it is what it is i mean so we're seeing that here now in, in nova scotia um i, I know that the universities uh, i think it was three days ago or two days ago and middle of the day, after the first round of exams were written, like in the morning session, I guess, and they said, hey, we're, we're now closed for the winter. All ex exams that haven't been written yet, then we pushed to January. See you later. That, that was done. Um, now, restaurants and gatherings, uh, that's been restricted again. 
So you're starting to see, for example, we were supposed to go out for dinner last night and uh, to a restaurant with some friends. And we, we ended up canceling in the end, not, not a fear of, you know, getting sick. It's just a fear that we know the way policies are put together that if we ended up being exposed at the restaurant, then um, like one group of friends, they were supposed to travel over, over the holidays. They knew that, hey, they probably wouldn't be able to do the travel. So uh, these things, I mean, they're not positive for economic growth. And again, it's all about, we know what the reaction is going to be because we talked about it last week, how it's sweeping across Europe and now it's here in Canada and Nova Scotia. And what did you say about Toronto? Is this happening in Toronto? Yeah, as well? like in Toronto, they've, they've cut. So any, 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 any indoor event over 1,000 people, apparently they've cut it to 50% capacity. So AKA, you know, if you're going to Toronto Maple Leafs game, with you know 20,000 fans that's now been cut to 10,000 which is kind of a shit show because apparently people are like well I've got tickets for next week's game like who 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 are they deciding that gets to go like are they just going to call wants to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs I'm I'm <laughs> sorry I'm confused about this you know is it you know what is it like that is it like the 10 is it the first 10,000 people that show up at the gate to get in and then they just refund everyone else's tickets like I, it's just a total mess I I but again, it is what it is. And, and so like, as Keith said, I mean, that doesn't seem very positive for economic growth. I mean, we're seeing all of these companies, right? Like corporations, all the big banks, for example, like they're, they don't want to take any liability or responsibility. So they're telling, okay, we're pushing our plans back for coming back to the office. Everybody go work from home. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, again, obviously now we're, so this is kind of happening at the same time, we're, we're seemingly pushing ahead with interest rate hikes into what I suspect will be a slowing uh, economy in the year ahead. But I mean, Keith, I, I, before just, I go on a crazy rant about COVID, I'll avoid doing that. But I will just say it's endemic. Like we, you know, it, this is it. COVID is never going away. That's all. That's, that's, I, I will restrain myself and keep my, my peace to that. I think no, the sooner... The sooner we all sort of come to terms with that, I think the sooner. It's the- pretty wild though, right? Because like, I'll give you another quick example. I was reading a story. Uh, so like the Calgary Flames, right? Like God bless Alberta. Um, a bunch of their games were postponed because they got all these players like in COVID protocol testing positive. Um, so they can't even like ice, they can't even ice a roster, right? Uh, and so people are coming out and saying, oh, these guys, they weren't vaccinated. They were. And they were. And so Milan Lucic uh, came out on the Calgary Flames there and he says, listen, like everyone on our team's double vaccinated. He's like, I'm triple vaccinated. I got a booster. He's got three shots and he's in, he's tested positive. He's in COVID protocol, can't play. Um, so like, it doesn't matter. I just see it's like you said, Rich, like you got a fourth shot and the variant comes along and you know, it's not covered by the force. So you gotta, like, it's just, it is endemic. I, I, I don't know. It is what it is, but there's just no lead. No, no one's, Anyway, I don't want to get into it. I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm just saying it's it's here to stay. This is it. For the rest of our lives, almost certainly COVID will be around. So how it's really more about the jurisdictional responsibilities that the people have to deal with and how much abuse they're going to be willing to take with respect to their hotel business or their children's education or their travel plans. Um, it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm supposed to go to Palm Springs over the uh, holidays here to record the Looney Hour. But uh, again, I don't know. Like, is it one of those ones where, you know, they're saying non-essential travel? And it's like, it, I don't know. I mean, is it essential to go see your your family that you haven't seen for, for a very long time? For, you know, you can call it what you want, mental health reasons. I mean, 
it's yeah so, anyways yeah. so so let's i mean to circle it back to the whole you know the investment world again this is from from our perspective here if we know that policymakers across say canada and europe and australia and everywhere else are going they've been very consistent there's no political party or a group to say hey this isn't right let's let's rethink this we know that growth is going to continue to start and stop and stop and start and pause and all, all that stuff. So the U.S. has a very unique situation coming up, of course, because they have their midterm elections next year. And, you know, no matter which way you look at it, half the country, they believe in one side of the lockdowns. The other half does not. So therefore, you're going to have like the, the roughly the biggest or second biggest economic engine in the world is going to be growing faster than Canada, Europe, you know, a lot of Asia and so forth. So then it goes back to, so, you know, again, we can see the U S just, just sucking up so much foreign capital, you're running into it. Plus if they have higher rates in the U S than anywhere else, you know, you, you get paid for parking money there as well. And um, again, so we always so, tie everything together. That's the way we view it. They, is the U.S. though almost not like forced to provide like because they are the kind of the liquidity provider of the entire world. So like they run, they run two, they run twin deficits. So they have a huge current account deficit, and they have a huge um, budget balance uh, or budget deficit. And so yeah, in theory, they they you know they export money, but. Keith's right in the sense that if you are the marginal consumer of assets and you want to buy, you know, companies like on the Russell, the Russell 2000, right? Small cap stocks that are going to, that won't be affected by lockdowns that have a clear vision on, on revenue and stuff like that. People are going to gobble up those, those. Um, oh, no, I agree on that aspect. I'm just thinking, yeah, you just don't, you just, if the U S starts hiking rates and you, you almost basically force every other major uh, or other emerging markets to basically hike rates too, no, and and slowing growth. Um, yeah, I mean, so first of all, with, with the Americans going to starting to tighten or hike rates and all that stuff, again, it it just sucks money out of the rest of the world, and it, that's fact. That's what will happen. But just say you're here in Canada and you're thinking, oh, man, we don't want to crush the housing market. Um, we want to keep spending. You know, the energy market is going to get a few negative winds up against it here coming up. You know, what what can we do to sort of sell other stuff to the world? You know, you devalue the currency. The same thing with the Europeans. Because again, the metrics across Europe and Eurozone are just horrible. They need the euro to go down to par. They needed hmm. to go back to 80 cents or whatever it was. By the way, I was traveling in Italy when euro was around 88 cents to the dollar. I think it was at the, like that the exact law, I think it was 01, 2001. We were over in Italy at, at the time. Um, that was a good trip too. So, um, but one I mean, thing being is, negative, it's one thing being negative Euro area, like economic growth, but there are some great stocks there. So I don't know, just, you know, you're very, you're more negative on Europe than I am, but I mean, LVMH has performed it just in line with Amazon over the last five years, which is something that I think people just don't recognize. So it's one thing to hate the countries and hate the, the economy, but some of those stocks are- We have to separate this. I mean, again, like um, when a country you goes into the crisis, the stock market usually goes up because people are running, they'd, they'd rather put the money in, in, the, in the private sector. So if you look again, if you go back to Turkey right now, the local Turkey market, it's, it's going vertical. It's going up, up and up. 
of course, it's just locals putting their money in the market. The central bank is probably buying it as well to prop it up. But yeah, you can clearly see a situation where, you know, the Eurozone goes into a crisis, you know, from a, from a debt perspective, they're unable to borrow. And they can't borrow now, really. It's the ECB buying everything. The currency goes down. And yeah, you can see the equities go up. So if any investor is looking to, to do those kinds of investments, you, know, you want to make sure you hedge the currency side of it. That really good is, opportunities. And that is what ice caps for. Ice cap asset management. We'll wrap it up there. What about uh, Acorn and, Macro Consulting? Don't forget about no, me. no. With the Tom Brady of of macro, <laughs> as eloquently put by one of our listeners, Rich Diaz with Acorn. Um, Rich, we might be working, or you might be working more or less on a retail product. Um, we're gonna, anyways. Long story short, not to to spill the beans here, but uh, we'll, we will have a Looney Hour website. Uh, hopefully launch in the new year. We're going to have some, some content that gets put up there and to go along with these shows. Uh, and, and Rich is kind of the, the genius behind a lot of that and a lot of the charts. So uh, appreciate uh, Rich, all your hard work there. Um, we got one more, one more show here before the, before the new year. Um, Christmas so. special. Christmas special. Chris is, uh, uh, Keith's going to be wearing his, uh, his, I have uh, a Christmas sweater. I have a good Christmas sweater to wear. Ugly Christmas sweater for next there you uh, go. Thursday. All right, gents. Well, as always, it's been a splice. We'll see you next week for episode 11.